So James chapter 2, reading from verse 14 down to verse number 26. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Ye a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? <coughs> Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now that's our reading. And we've been going through this epistle so far, and it has been a practical epistle so far and continues to be that this evening. And we've been, just by way of um, reminder, we've been thinking about the practical demonstration of the reality of Christian faith. And we saw that he introduced the epistle by speaking about the issue of testing and contrast that with uh, the whole idea of temptation. So you have testing, the testing of our faith, which is from God, which is profitable and which comes from outside of ourselves, usually in life circumstances. And then you've got temptation and that is not profitable that is not of God and that comes from inside of us and it's destructive when we respond to it and so having uh, kind of defined what he's going to mean by testing he then begins to bring to bear upon us the various tests of our faith and we saw that he began by speaking about the word of God and our response to it and our response when we hear the word of God is a demonstration of the reality of our spiritual condition. And that's the section where he speaks about being doers of the word and not hearers only. And then we also saw down toward the end of chapter 1 that he speaks about the reality of compassion towards those who are needy in the community, not simply those who are Christians, but generally a compassionate attitude towards other people is a demonstration that faith is real. And so we're seeing that faith is not a kind of uh, academic thing. It is not a kind of nebulous concept, but rather it is something that can be manifested and demonstrated in the day-to-day -day things of life. You don't need to be in a university context. You don't need to be in an academic context, nor the religious equivalent to demonstrate the reality of faith. It's in the day-to-day -day nuts and bolts of life. 
it's at work, it's when you're travelling to work, it's in your family, it's in the home, it's in your community. These are the areas where faith is seen. And faith is seen rather than heard. And so he also, last night, brought this very practical issue to bear upon them, that of discrimination, economic discrimination. That is treating people differently because they've got money and others don't have money. Or they've got status and others don't have status. And our attitude towards people, and again, this is not simply towards other Christians, although it is true towards other Christians, but our attitude towards people generally, if it is predicated upon what we can get from them, then that is not a demonstration of the reality of faith. In other words, you treat someone differently because they have wealth and you perceive that that will be in some way beneficial to you if you're that person's friend. Or it's the idea of doing favours for people, it's the idea of getting in someone's good books, someone of significance and someone you think should be respected and treated well. Well, James has taught us that is not the way that God is and therefore it is not the way that we should be as the children of God. Now he comes after having dealt with that to speak about this issue in verse 14 down to verse 26 which is the issue that James' epistle is so well known for. It's the issue of faith and works. And there's always a contrast drawn between the teaching of this section and the teaching of Paul when he speaks about justification by faith alone in Romans, and particularly in Romans chapter 4. And so many in the past have seen these as being contradictory, whereas they are complementary. And the teaching of Paul in Romans chapter 4, which, by the way, is also illustrated in the two examples that you find in this chapter, which is the example of Abraham and Rahab. And Paul uses their example to teach the truth of justification by faith, while James uses the same two examples to teach the, teach the truth of justification by works. And we're going to see that they harmonize together. They are complementary, not contradictory. And the reason he deals with this subject is that he brings out questions. And in fact, I think there are six questions in these 13 verses. And he's anticipating objections to this idea of faith being seen, faith being evidenced. In fact, there being no evidence for faith, then there is no faith. And he's anticipating questions that arise and so in verse 14 down to verse 26, as I say, six questions in 13 verses, and he's anticipating these issues being raised and answering them as he does so. So we come to verse 14, and he says in verse 14, What does it profit, my brethren? And here it is, though a man say. So here is the question that is being put. It's a hypothetical question. Though a man say. And he wants the reader, I would suggest, to anticipate the questions and be able to answer them for yourself. And so question after question, what does it profit? It provokes thought. He's asking, what is the answer to this? He doesn't want us just to read this. He wants us to read it and answer the question that he poses. He'll give us the information to answer it, but he wants the question answered. What does it profit? There's the question. What's the gain? What's the benefit? My brethren, 
Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save? Now, I'm going to deal with this in a moment or two, but as you go down this passage, then remember you can't pluck out an expression from the passage and read it out of context because it gives a completely different meaning. And so you can't take out this, this little expression that James has said and then take out an expression that Paul says and put them as contradictory statements. They are probably contradictory when seen out of context, but the context brings them into harmony with each other. So when we're reading this, what doth it, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? So he says, it's his profession. There is no demonstration of it in his life, but there is a profession of faith. Now, we use that expression all the time. Someone has a profession. Someone has professed to be saved. Now, we use that expression, I think, rightly, because when someone says that they are saved... All you have is the words that that person says. You've nothing else. So someone says to you, I've got saved. You're in absolutely no position to know whether that's a true statement or not. It's impossible. And it's impossible because we don't know the spiritual realities that are going on in that person's heart. All we know is what someone said. However, when someone then begins to live thereafter and time passes, days go into weeks, go into months, then you're able not just to listen to what someone says. James says you need to watch and see what that person has become. And how do you know what that person has become? By observing the things that they do. That's what James is referring to when he speaks about works. So he says, here's a man who says he has faith and he has not works. Can that type of faith save him? What faith is he speaking about? It's the faith he's mentioned in the verse. Faith without any works. Faith without evidence. Faith without fruit. Faith that produces nothing other than his profession. So actually the grammar, it's the present active subjunctive, if you like grammar, and the, it really just means this. He is constantly saying to you, I have faith. But there's nothing in his life to show the reality of that. There are no works. And what works might James be speaking about? Again, keep it in the context. He has been speaking about someone's response to the word of God and, and to be a doer and not a hearer only. So that when he hears the word of God, there is a response, there is fruit. There's something produced in the life. He's spoken about the need to have compassion upon the, the most vulnerable in society, the widows and the orphans within that context, but the most vulnerable in society, whoever they may be. And someone who's hard-hearted and has no compassion on people who are in that situation in the community is showing no evidence of spiritual life. Someone who is marked by that economic discrimination and their attitude towards people. And chapter 2, verses 1 down that we saw last time is the explanation of that. 
That is the sort of work he's speaking about. That is the evidence, that is evidence, that is the fruit. These are the righteous deeds that demonstrate the reality of salvation. So when he says this, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he has faith, so all you have is his profession, there is no evidence, and he'll give more evidences as the epistle goes on. The question is, is that person saved? Now, he has faith, but is it saving faith? There's a difference. And he's demonstrated what that difference is. This man says he has faith and he's going to go on, come on to a monotheistic idea of just believing in God in a moment or two. But here's a man who says, no, I have faith. Well, no one is saying you don't have faith. But is it saving faith? Is it living faith? Is it faith in Christ? Can that type of faith save? A, save that a faith that produces nothing in change of character, nothing in terms of, of spiritual realities in your life, nothing in terms of compassion, nothing in terms of response to God's word when you hear it, nothing in terms of changing your attitude towards people so that it reflects God's attitude towards people. If there's nothing there, is that person saved? The answer is no, that person is not saved. Now, I don't know if you're thinking about someone just as I'm speaking. And you're thinking about someone who has a profession of salvation. But there never has been any reality, any evidence, any fruitfulness spiritually in their life. James is saying, look, that's not saving faith. So rather than go along with that as an accommodation rather than go along with that simply because it's easier that in itself is deception to facilitate someone's belief or understanding that they are saved when they're not the stakes are too high the evidence may not be consistent in someone's life but there needs to be some evidence of change so can that faith save let me illustrate from another section in uh, the gospels where the lord jesus demonstrated the difference between faith and saving faith between belief and belief in christ as the bible teaches it in john chapter 8 it says this that there were Jews that came to the Lord Jesus. And in John 8, verse 30, it says this, as, and he was teaching them, as he spake these words, many believed on him. So you would say they're saved. They believed in Jesus. Who could these people be in our kind of context? Anyone who says they believe in Jesus. Anyone. That's what these Jews say. It says of these Jews, they believed in him. Then the Lord Jesus, down through John chapter 8, acknowledged that they believed in him, for it says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now he didn't question that they'd expressed a belief in him. They didn't, he didn't, in fact, question that they said they believed in him. 
But he said this, and the tense of that verse in verse 31 is important. If you abide, if you continue, that's present tense, if as the habit of your life you continue in my word, then, he said, are you my disciples? Actually, what happened was the opposite. When they processed what the Lord Jesus in John 8 was telling them, you discover this in verse 59 at the end of the chapter, the same people took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and passed by. They tried to kill him at the end of the chapter, but they believed on him at the beginning of the chapter. You see, if someone says they believe in Jesus, what do they believe? I've got to be in my bonnet about this sort of thing in terms of the preaching of the gospel. If no, if someone comes uh, and is in relationship with you or, or is attending something and they hear the gospel, what do they hear? Because that determines who they're responding to and what they're believing. So if you give someone deficient information about the Lord Jesus, for example, say you've never told that person that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. What if you don't tell that person, you know, that you need to uh, repent of your sin to be saved? And what you're doing is you're giving them a fraction of the information they require in order to properly repent of their sin and trust the Lord Jesus. Trust the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who's the Savior of the world, who's the risen, glorified Savior, and they're believing a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They're believing a gospel that's not the gospel of the Bible. So they have faith, but it's not faith in Christ. So what happens is just this. Time goes on, life changes, circumstance change, and when the true teaching of the Bible comes to bear in their life, like the Jews did in John chapter 8, they actually stop believing in that Jesus and end up hostile to Jesus. That's what happens when someone makes a false profession. Now, whose fault is false profession? Well, that's a complex issue, but you know, one of, one of those, um, if you like, people who could be at fault for someone making a false profession is the someone who gave them the information to respond to. Because they told them about a Jesus that wasn't in the Bible. And they didn't tell them that to be saved they needed to repent of their sin so that when they were bumping along now thinking they're a Christian and actually the true gospel comes to bear in their life, they're like, "Eh, no. And someone who's got a false profession, who turns from that false profession, ends up more hostile to Christ than they were at the beginning. You've seen it, I've seen it. So does that faith saved is that person saved that person's not saved that person had a belief that person had a faith but it wasn't the faith of the bible in the christ of the bible and so we ought not because it makes it easier for us in our thinking hang on to people's professions of faith if there is absolutely no demonstration of reality That is not saving faith. Now, he comes to this in verse 15. Now, mark this, there is no conflict with Paul's teaching. None whatsoever. 
Paul teaches in Romans chapter 4 that in order to be saved, there's no requirement for works whatsoever. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 11 are sections that exclude any works-based effort on our part in coming to Christ and in being saved. Let me be absolutely plain about that. James is dealing with a different issue than Paul is. Paul was writing about coming into a right relationship with God. James is considering an empty profession of faith and the lack of evidence of reality. So Paul rules out earning salvation by works and James rules out a faith that doesn't then produce evidence in the way of works. Now, verse 15. So to demonstrate what he's talking about, he introduced a scenario, and it's a simple scenario. Verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister be naked, so he is speaking about a fellow Christian, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. So faith is seen in practical compassion here. He is a person who's hungry and cold. And then in verse 16, now mark this, this is, this is contrasting words without action words with action so it's the principle he's been establishing and he says look one of you say unto them there's the words depart in peace be warmed and filled notwithstanding ye give them not those things there's the action or lack of it those things which are needful to the body of what profit is it so he's saying look words without action words without evidence are not profitable they're not beneficial they they don't have substance and you can see it in this illustration. Be warmed and filled. Now, the tenses can be either. This can either be the middle of the passive voice, and it means this. It could either be extremely sarcastic or simply indifferent. So it could read this. Warm yourself. Fill yourself. Don't come to me with your problems. Or if it's in the passive voice, it's a little less harsh. It's a kind of hope you find somebody to give you clothes or I hope someone else feeds for you. I'll be praying for you. But one thing I'm not going to do is put my hand in my wallet. So words without action leads to absolutely no benefit because the man who is hungry can't eat your words and the man who is cold can't wear your words. So not even your words to God can be eaten or, or worn. So when you say, I'm going to pray for you, that's fine. But actually what the man needs is not your prayers. He needs food and clothes. He doesn't need your prayers. He needs food and clothes. So the cop-out is, say words, even if they're said to God, if it means you don't actually need to do something about it. James says, that is not beneficial. It's the same outcome, notwithstanding you don't give the man the things which are needful to the body. So what kind of faith is that? What effect do these words have? They don't meet the need of the body. Zodiatis, a man who writes commentaries, observed this, that it is the imperfections of this world which provide opportunity to test the genuineness of our faith. So it is. It's when stuff goes wrong. It's when stuff's broken. It's when stuff isn't functioning. It's when people's lives are shattered. It's when people are in the gutter. It's when people are in need. These are the opportunities in life to demonstrate faith. The reality of faith. 
So he summarizes this half of the section in verse 17 and says, even so faith. So he's, he's made the statement, then he's given the illustration, now he's bringing the illustration to bear upon the point and says, even so faith, if it hath not works. He doesn't say it's less faith, a lesser faith, a not so good faith. He says it's a dead faith. It's dead. So a faith without fruit is a faith that's dead. Now let me be frank about this. If someone lives their life with a profession of faith and they die, those words that they say will not mean that they enter into heaven. These are empty words without the reality in the heart, without the manifestation and evidence of it in life. So the profession of someone who says, I believe in Jesus in whatever way, and yet in their life, there is no demonstration of the genuineness of those words, inappropriate behaviour, which, when you read James, it's very, very down to earth, very practical. So in verse number 18, he has another question. Here's another hypothetical question. Yea, a man may say. So he's at against the second one. So though a man say, verse 14, verse 18, yea, a man may say. So he's anticipating objections to that. Now you make an <coughs> objection to that in your own mind. And the objection would run current with what many people say today. Who are you to judge? There's the question. There's the statement. Who are you to judge? Well, the issue is not actually whether I judge or don't judge. That doesn't change anything. That doesn't actually matter. The issue is God's judgment in the matter. And God's judgment is that that kind of faith's a dead faith. Therefore, that person's not saved that's not my judgment on it. That's God's judgment on someone's empty profession. But he anticipates this, so he kind of anticipates a man who would say this, listen, you have your faith and I have works. So he's someone who separates faith and works out and says they don't need to go together at all. So here's someone who's full of good works and charitable deeds. Here's someone who says that they're a Christian. So James answers that. So James is thinking of a possible objection. Someone who says faith is fine. Works are fine. They're both perfectly genuine manifestations of true religion. But you don't need to have both. And so someone might have faith. Another person might have works and so on. James says, no, listen. Show me thy faith without thy works. It's impossible. Show me your faith. You can't do it. It's not demonstrable without works. Well, he says the contrast is this. I can show you my faith by my works. Then he goes on and says this in verse number 19. And he introduces a monotheistic argument. That's someone who believes in one living God, but still is not a Christian. So you've got these different scenarios. Here's someone 
in verse number 14, who's got a profession without any manifestation of evidence. Here's someone who takes the view that you can separate out works and faith and they're of equal value. In other words, you read the Bible, you go into that Christian stuff. As for me, I I would rather have a kind of more humanistic, um, altruistic type of um, outlook in life and, and do good works. And both are fine. He says, no, both are not fine. And then in verse 18, uh, sorry, verse number 19, he raises this, which is sometimes raised, well, listen, I have faith in God. I believe in one God. Thou believest, he says, that there is one God. Well, that is true. But the verbal construction, if I get into it, would indicate that this is an intellectual commitment to a creed like an orthodox creed. So some would always chant these things. Rather than a distinctly Christian trust in terms of belief. So someone believes as a kind of theoretical idea there is a God and this is not the belief in God that the Bible speaks about. This is not true commitment which includes obedience. So he then says, listen, I want to tell you that the demons also believe in one God except they respond and tremble. So to simply believe in God is no different from what the demons do. That is not saving faith either. And he brings the conclusion at verse number 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, in what way is the man vain? Well, the man is vain in that the man is empty. The man's empty. So he doesn't have what you really need to have. He doesn't have saving faith. Now, the people most at risk of that problem that I raised in the first part of what I was speaking about there in verse number 14 down, in my view, are people brought up in Christian homes who say yes to what they are taught from childhood who say yes to what their parents believe and how they live, who affirm the whole ethos of the family, the whole worldview of the family, and by so doing are going along with that which pleases parents and everyone else around about the family. But never actually realize or come to the point where they repent of their sin and trust the saviour as their saviour and so here's a challenge and the challenge is a challenge against complacency for those of us who have children or are going to have children that we do not assume that our children have and are responding to the necessary information in order to be saved. As parents, it's such a delicate thing and you're delighted when your child says that they're saved and accepts the saviour. 
but there requires care so that when someone comes with childish faith, and I was saved when I was seven, and childlike faith is all that's required, but there does need to be a turning from sin and a trusting the Saviour, but there needs to be that delicate understanding that if your child says that they're saved when they're five, six, seven, or whatever, and then by the time they're 19, 20, 21, They've got no desire after spiritual things. Their whole trajectory of life when they have begun to make decisions for themselves has been away from the gospel as opposed to toward it. Then you need to face up to the possibility that that profession of faith was not true. Was not true. And parents... Yeah, some parents have had to face that and it's not a very nice thing to have to face. But let us understand that that is a possibility because of familiarity and because of, of, of saying that someone said or yes to Jesus for all perhaps good reasons and so on, but yet not actually engaging with the gospel. Not engaging with the gospel. Not understanding the needs. Not understanding their condition as a sinner. Not actually accepting the Lord Jesus as their saviour. So let's come to the second part of the section, which is the demonstration of true faith seen in Abraham and in Rahab. Now he says in verse number 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? And those who've read through the book of Romans are horrified and they say, hold on a minute, Paul's just been teaching right through the book of Romans that Abraham was justified by faith. Abram believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Abram's the father of the faithful. He's the man, he's the guy you look to to demonstrate that faith is all that is required for true relationship with God. Uh, and you see that in Romans. He's called here Abram our father. Now he was father to the Jews, but I think here this is not just to the Jews. He's the father of the faithful. He's the father of all people who believe in God for true salvation, who accept Jesus Christ as their saviour, whether Jew or Gentile. Galatians 3 verse 7 says that, Know ye therefore that they who are of faith, the same are the sons of Abraham. So he sets the model, he sets the example of true living faith. But he was justified by works. Now, let me just say this, in Romans chapter 4 verse 1 to 8, Paul teaches that Abram was justified by faith. That is, God declared Abraham to be right with himself. It was a judicial declaration. It's a courtroom scene. God's the judge. God has already put a verdict on every person's life condemned. We're sinners. As we were born, we have been born condemned. We are declared to be guilty by the highest judicial authority in the universe, it's God. But Abram had that verdict reversed. So does everyone when they're saved. And the opposite word from condemnation is justification. One is a declaration of guilt. It's not guilt, but it's a declaration of guilt by the court. One is a declaration of innocence. It's not innocence, it's a declaration of innocence. 
so that to be condemned is to have the judicial verdict of guilt passed upon you. To be justified is to have the judicial verdict of guilt reversed and for God to declare you to be right with himself. Now Paul argues this and he argues that Abraham was justified not by the works that he did but by faith. When he believed God, God received him, God reversed that judicial declaration. In Romans 4 verse 9 to 7 he goes on to argue that Abraham was justified by grace and not by law. So it was free, it wasn't earned. The truth of the matter is just this. You cannot be justified before God by works. You cannot be. Genesis chapter 15 in the life of Abram, verse 3 to 6, it said this, that Abram believed God and his righteousness, or righteousness, sorry, was put to his account, was imputed to him. So God gave him righteousness. Now when did Abram believe God? Well, you go to Hebrews chapter 11 to find out. And the catalogue of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, he obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. So, there you have, in that one verse, Abraham's faith at the beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 11 into Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was called to go out of one of the Chaldees to a place that he didn't know and he believed God. How do we know? Because he obeyed. So you have his faith demonstrated by his action. He actually got up and went. That's how we know he believed God. So there is faith and there's the demonstration of faith. However, when you come to Romans chapter 4, it's interesting. That in Romans chapter 4, you have in terms of Abram's justification by faith, not his leaving out of the Chaldees mentioned, but his belief in the promise of God in relation to a son. So Abram believes God there in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. But when you read in Genesis again, God gave him a promise. Your seed will be as the sands of the sea and as the stars of heaven. I'll make out of your loins a great nation. Whoever blesses them will be blessed. Whoever curses them will be cursed. Now finally, God gives him that child, Isaac. He's over 100 years old. And God's going to fulfill all his promises in that child, Isaac. So Abraham's inheritance, the land, the nation, it's all in this child, Isaac. Now, Abraham believed God when he told him that in Genesis 15. I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. But Isaac wasn't born just after Abraham believed God. It was years and years later. And so, Isaac is born. God is fulfilling his promise. Abraham believed him. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now the child's born. And 10, maybe 15 years later, God speaks to Abraham again. This is what he says. Paraphrasing. You see that child that was miraculously given to you as the fulfilment of my promise? I want you to kill him. You see, it was much more significant, significant though it was, to sacrifice your son, which God had never asked for before. That was the pagan nations round about. 
but to sacrifice your son in whom all the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. The promises that you built your life upon, the promises that cause you to leave your family, to go out and become a, a kind of wanderer and to live in tents. The promises that actually have sustained you your whole life, Abraham. And you're over 100 years old and God says, take the son that I gave you miraculously to fulfill my promises and kill him. Thus bringing to an end the opportunity for God's promise to be fulfilled. So it says in verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abram believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. And by the way, he wasn't called the friend of God until after he had uh, gone through with the whole Genesis chapter 2 thing of taking Isaac up the mountain. But in verse number 21, was not Abram our father justified by works when he'd offered Isaac his son upon the altar? What happens is this. How do you know? How do people know that Abram believes God? Genesis 15, I'll make you of you a huge nation. He believes God. How does anybody know? Well, they don't know until you get to Genesis 22. When God says, you take that son, you take him up the mountain, you put him on an altar, you kill him, you burn his body, you scatter his ashes. Abram, do you really believe God? Yes, he does. How do we know he really believes God? Because he takes the way that God has given him for his promise to be fulfilled and he is willing to take his son Isaac and he takes him up the mountain and he says to the people, I'm coming back down with Isaac. Wait here. I and the lad are going up yonder to worship and will return. He is absolutely convinced that even if he puts a knife in his son, he and his son are coming back down the mountain. Now he's never seen resurrection before. But he just believes God. To the extent he's even willing to put a knife into his son. So he takes his son and he puts his son in the altar. He binds him. The, the fire is there. The wood is there. The knife is there. And of course, if you know Genesis chapter 22, God will not have that. And God stays his hand. And there is a substitute put in instead of the son. And the substitute animal is slain. And right enough, Isaac walks down that mountain with Abraham. So supposing you meet Isaac in the mountain coming back down. You say, Abram, do you believe that God is going to make of you a great nation? I mean, there's only a handful of you. Yes, I do. Why do you believe that? Because God said it to me. Why else would you believe it? There's no other reason. That's faith. But how do I know? How do I know? How does everyone know? How do, how do people know that you believe God? He said, I just took my son up that mountain and I raised a knife and I was just about to plunge it into my son and thus kill the only possible way for actually God to fulfill his promise in my life and I was willing to do that. That is the demonstration that I believe God. And therefore Abram is justified not before God, he is justified before men. There is, a, there is a declaration made in Abraham's life and the declaration is his actions and his actions speak louder than words to people. You ever heard that before? 
So to be justified by works is not your relationship with God, it's actually your relationship with men. It is demonstrating to people, it's a declaration of the reality of your faith that's seen in your day-to-day life. That you can point to and show the difference. There is a verse, I've lost it in my notes, that actually teaches that the justification by works that Paul argues against is to be justified before God. You cannot be justified before God by works, but you can be justified before men by works. For example, he says, what about Rahab? Okay, take another example. So Abram, I'm going to take Abram over here. Abram is the father of the nation. He's the father of the faithful. He's the leader of the nation. He's met God face to face. He's kind of had these unique experiences with God and so on. Right over here, we'll go to the exact opposite. Someone at the other end of every spectrum you can imagine. Here's Rahab. She's not of Israel. She lives in Jericho. She's never met the people of Israel. She lives as a prostitute behind the walls of Jericho and we're going to speak about her. Because she came to faith and proved it in her life. So he says, Rahab, likewise, um, sorry, verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works. So you go back to Judges and you read the story of Rahab and you remember around the walls of Jericho, around the walls of Jericho, you remember Jericho was the huge big city fortress that was uh, just over the Jordan that the people of Israel had to deal with in order to enter into the land. And it was imposing, it was impossible. It was an impregnable fortress. And here is this nomadic uh, national army. So not even a professional army. This nomadic army uh, people's army uh, and they're coming over there is no possibility of no siege engines there are no weapons of warfare no horses no chariots nothing and here they are outside the greatest fortress that they've ever seen the walls of Jericho so thick how could they possibly take this city well they send spies in and you remember the spies that went in and you remember that when they were spying out Jericho uh, Two of the spies get into a bit of bother and they're about to be discovered and they go into the house of Rahab, the harlot, and she hid the spies and she sent the soldiers the wrong way and she sent the spies out again and she had a conversation with the spies before she sent them out. That conversation is unbelievable. Here's a woman who bases the biggest life decision that she has. Does she sell out the spies to her own nation? Or does she protect them and hide them? She protected them and hid them. Now, why did she do that? She told the spies why. She said to the spies, I know, this is Judges chapter 2, I know. That's the key expression. I know. How do you know? How do you know anything Rahab from Jericho? I know that the Lord has given you this land. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? And that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Why? 
for we have heard. How does faith come to an individual? How does someone believe? It is by hearing. Faith cometh by hearing. She had heard. What does she hear? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years before. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. That was just a few days before. She said, I've heard all about you as a nation. I've heard all what God did for you. And I believe in the God that did that for you. I believe. Why do you believe Rahab? It's not rational. Why do you believe you've got no evidence in front of you other than words? I believe, she says. I know. I have heard. And I believe what I heard. That's faith. Now what's the conclusion? As soon as we heard these things, our heart did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. She says this, because of what I heard, I believe in your God. That's faith. Faith is believing what you hear about God from his word. And you say, Rahab, empty words. No. Rahab believed. She's justified by faith. But she's also justified by works. Who is she justified? Who's the declaration made to by her works? To these two spies who she's talking to and to the nation of Israel who come and conquer Jericho and save her alive. She's going to demonstrate that she believes in the God of Israel. How's she going to do that? Well, first of all, she saves the spies and secondly, she hangs the scarlet rope out the window. And in her actions, she demonstrates the reality of her belief. You see, in verse 26, he finishes by saying this, listen. As a body without breath is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Here's the challenge. A body without breath, a lifeless corpse. And so it has, at first appearance, everything that looks like life. But it's not breathing. Why is it not breathing? There's no life within the, within the body. There's no breath. When you think about an individual, we can have all the external appearance of Christianity, but no life, no reality, no breath. James says, I want to bring these tests of faith to bear so that you are not living with only a profession of salvation and no reality. And when you face up to these challenges, the challenge of the word of God, the challenge of compassion, the challenge of discrimination, and he'll speak about, and perhaps most difficult of all, the challenge of a gossipy tongue. That's chapter three. Because a gossipy tongue is a demonstration, not a demonstration of Christian faith. We trust that God will bless these uh, sections, these verses to us, and there'll be a challenge.